Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and foster care. Today, we're going to be getting down and dirty and talking about what it is really like to raise a child with FASD. We will be talking with Suzanne Emery. She has a master's in leadership of nursing. She is a family nurse practitioner. She is certified by FACETS, which stands for Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Consultation Education and Training Services. She is certified as a facilitator for their neurobehavioral model. And she is also one of their program directors. She leads workshops, provides consulting services, and facilitates a family support group all in the area of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. And they use a brain-based approach. She is also a single mom to two wonderful young men, the younger of whom has FASD. Welcome, Suzanne, to Creating a Family. We are so glad to talk with you. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. Yeah, excellent. So you you know about this both from a profession of FASD, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, both from a professional standpoint as well as a personal standpoint, which is probably the best combination to be talking about what it's really like to raise a child because you're in the process of doing that. So uh, let's start with some of what we know from about the impact of alcohol, how it impacts the brain of a developing fetus. Um, what does, uh, the word is it's a teratogen, and alcohol is a very strong teratogen, meaning that it impacts, it crosses the fetal uh, placental barrier and impacts the developing uh, fetus. So what do we know from science about how alcohol impacts uh, the the brain and every every part of the developing fetus. Right. So alcohol is actually the most damaging substance or teratogen, the, the word you used, to the developing fetus because it is a solvent. So what that means is that anything that either the mother or the father around the time of conception and all during pregnancy and nursing, um, a baby drinks, that amount goes directly to the developing fetus. There's no barrier in the placenta. And it can have many different effects on the developing fetus. It particularly damages the developing neurons. So um, a neuron has all these little kind of fingers that go out and communicate with other neurons. It can um, affect the development of those. There can be less of those little tentacles called dendrites. Then another part of the neuron is kind of like a little branch that goes down to the other end of the neuron, which is surrounded by something called the myelin sheath which is kind of like the coating of an electrical cable, which allows messages to go faster than the speed of light and have this amazing connection in our brains to be able to do so many of the things we do. And alcohol as a solvent either sometimes doesn't allow the myelin sheath to form or it actually dissolves that myelin sheath. So it ends up kind of being um, like an electrical cable without that rubber, which can create problems with seeing, um, a much slower kind of processing. It can affect the cognitive kind of flexibility of mm-hmm. a person being able to shift gears. On top of just what it does to the neuron itself, there can be 
a kind of disorganized way the brain um, develops as well as less neurons. So okay. those are just some of the ways alcohol can affect the brain. In short, it causes brain damage. Would that be a, a summary of, of what you just said? Yeah, our brain dysfunction or a brain that works differently. Okay. And we're going to talk in a minute about some of the ways that brain works differently. Does the impact uh, differ depending the impact on the, uh, the, the baby? Does it differ depending on what trimester of the pregnancy the mother drinks excessively? Uh, but let me, let me just also note that oftentimes uh, we don't know, especially those of us who are parenting or fostering, we don't really know uh, what the, the mother's drinking pattern was throughout pregnancy. So there's something of a misnomer because sometimes we think that the mom stopped drinking after the first semester, uh, the first trimester, but in fact, she continued to binge on periodic basis. So we may not know. But what do we know from the science about uh, the differing impacts depending on what trimester of the pregnancy the excessive drinking occurs? Right. Well, first of all, it's really important. This, only, this isn't only about women. We know that both moms and dads, um, if a father is drinking around the time of conception, alcohol affects the sperm in many different ways. And then it's not just excessively. A mother can be drinking. I know um, many children that have FASD that their mother was, um, we would probably categorize it as social drinking early on in pregnancy before she knew she was pregnant. And there is no safe amount of alcohol to drink during pregnancy. So it doesn't take very much alcohol to affect a developing fetus. So at the very beginning, that, that first trimester, especially before a woman knows she's pregnant, is probably the most kind of dangerous time to drink because that's when those first neurons are being, those first cells of the nervous system are being laid down. And so it's, if those first cells are damaged, it's kind of like a multiplication process that the cells after those can also be affected. Whereas if there was no alcohol, um, either from mother, father, during conception, all through pregnancy, and the mother, for example, had a glass of wine um, to celebrate that she was soon to give birth, there could still be damage, but it may be um, a much less damage than early on in pregnancy where those first cells are being laid down and can um, affect all the cells that are that grow after those. Mm -hmm. All right, so there is no safe amount and damage can occur at any try any point during the pregnancy, but there it would be uh, evidence to indicate that early drinking in the first trimester may cause more damage simply because of what was developing at that time. Um, is that a summary? That's it. Yeah, exactly. You did okay. a great job. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You know, I think that uh, people have heard of FAS, so a fetal alcohol syndrome. Uh, the preferred term now is fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And we, the, of course, we have to have an acronym, and that is FASD. What's the difference, and why did we change from FAS to FASD? Right. Well, the fetal alcohol syndrome is actually a medical diagnosis which is um, not very common. And 
to have that diagnosis, there has to be um, three particular facial characteristics, along with growth deficiencies and then cognitive differences. And the FASD is a much broader term. It's kind of like an umbrella term that encompasses any person that um, has been exposed to alcohol during needle period, which can include the fetal alcohol syndrome. But most people affected by alcohol prenatally do not have any physical characteristics. Mm-hmm. And so most people would be considered um, not in the fetal alcohol syndrome, but under this bigger umbrella called fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Okay. All right, so now let's talk about some of the primary behaviors that we see that are most characteristic of the brain damage associated with uh, alcohol uh, exposure to a fetus or with FASD. Tell us what some of these characteristics are, and then we're going to then we're going to talk about how they may how they may look at different ages uh, of a child. But let's talk kind of generally to begin with. Okay. First, I want to explain what primary characteristics mean, just in case that is an unfamiliar term. Oh, yes, Prim- please do. And, and in yeah. contrast, if you would, please, between secondary behaviors, and we'll talk about those uh, after we talk about this. Okay. So we can categorize behaviors into primary, secondary, and even tertiary characteristics. And when we talk about primary characteristics, we're talking about all the behaviors that are directly linked to brain function. So these kind of behaviors kind of give us a window look, a glimpse into how the brain is functioning. When we talk, start talking about secondary and tertiary characteristics, those kind of behaviors are not behaviors that are linked to brain function those kind of behaviors or characteristics develop over time when there is a chronic poor fit between a person and their environment or their expectations um, around that person. And just like any of us who would live under chronic stress and frustration, we would develop these other kinds of behaviors, which we call secondary and tertiary characteristics The good thing about those is that they can be prevented and diminished greatly as we understand what the primary characteristics are. So some of the the most common primary characteristics are things such as um, developmental level of functioning. So it's very common that a child in the fetal alcohol spectrum, even though they have a certain chronological age, let's say of 10, they may not be functioning in all areas as a 10-year-old. It's very common that in some areas, they may be functioning at about half their age. So their developmental age would be more like five. Um, It's very common that alcohol affects the sensory systems. So there can be many different, different kinds of behaviors we see there from being overly stimulated and slow to settle to being oversensitive or undersensitive to touch, that's a huge topic in itself. Um, The area of nutrition can be affected. Um, Language and communication is another big area. It's very common that children that have been affected by alcohol, um, we often interpret them as being kids that lie a lot. And it's actually 
not lying. There is a, a technical term called confabulation, which is very common in this um, population, which means they're, because of memory difficulties and because of their great need to socialize and to be able to talk and tell stories, they have gaps in what they remember. And so they start telling stories or things that happen and they literally don't remember pieces of that. And so they kind of fill in the blanks. And to somebody um, listening, it sounds absolutely ridiculous. But if you try to confront them, they usually get very angry and mad because they're oftentimes not aware that that's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Another area that can be affected is processing pace. So um, we can say that these are kids that sometimes um, hear one out of every three words that we say because we usually are talking very quickly or mm -hmm. kids that take 10 seconds to do what we expect everybody to do in one second. So their brains just go a little slower, although it doesn't look like that on the outside because physically they're usually going a lot faster and sometimes they're even talking really fast. So um, sometimes we don't understand that really their brain processes more slowly. And sometimes that can look like they struggle with forming associations, predicting, abstract reasoning. And also, I think one of the most frustrating things for parents is the cause and effect reasoning. Uh, because we could say, well, you did this last time and it didn't work. What, what happened when you did this last time and why are you doing it again? But understanding the cause and effect, it takes longer. And that's also part of the, the impact of prenatal exposure. Right. Yeah. Learning and memory is another big area that's affected being able to do one of three steps because of that inability to remember many things at once. They sometimes need to be retaught um, the same thing over and over and over again. And as um, Don just mentioned, that, ab that ability to generalize mm -hmm. information. So they may be taught something at home and we would assume they would understand that anywhere they go, they um, should remember, for example, that you share or that you are respectful to adults or whatever, all these things that we try to teach children, they may need to be retaught. The same thing in the different environments where they go. And one really important thing to know within the primary characteristics, it's not just the difficulties that their brain has, but within the primary characteristics are also included all of their strengths. So um, all the things they do well, their passions, the way they learn. And that whole piece is super important to understand because these kids have amazing strengths and abilities and um, learn in particular ways. And if we can build on that piece, we're going to have a lot more success than trying to change these other behaviors that are actually um, indicators of their brain function. And that's why kind of reward, punishment, behavior modification isn't going to work to change these behaviors because it's like kind of giving somebody a consequence for not walking if they're paralyzed from the waist down. It doesn't matter how many privileges we take away or what consequences we give um, until their brain matures and is able to do those things, we're not going to be able to change these kind of behaviors. Okay, now let's, let's talk about how these behaviors might look at different ages. 
I think that would be helpful for us to just kind of uh, make concrete some of the abstract we have been talking about. So what would you say would be some typical behaviors of a child who is somewhere on the fetal alcohol spectrum? In the Let's talk with infants and toddlers. How might they look different from a neurotypical uh, infant or toddler? Right. That's a great question, Don. And it really is going to look different in every child because this is a spectrum. Every child is very different. And it also really depends on the parent, the parents, the parenting style and the environment in which they grow up, how many of these characteristics we see. So early on with infants and toddlers, some probably common things that might be seen are the inability to settle, just having um, you know longer periods of crying or being upset and having a hard time um, soothing, settling down. A, a baby or a young child, like um, a neurotypical baby, loves like gazing in their parents' eyes. That's one of the places they love to to look and where they learn so much. And a child affected by alcohol, that may be way too overstimulating for a baby that has been affected by alcohol. And so they may have a hard time making that eye contact. They um, toddlers, you know, once they're kind of mobile. They could appear, you know, with a lot more energy, um, kind of hyperactive. All toddlers are impulsive and we have to be careful with safety, but they may, it may go beyond the, the neurotypical kind of two to three-year-old behavior. They could be, um, my son, I know when he was really little in a um, kind of foster home in Costa Rica, they told me he would actually crawl up the closets. They had um, kind of those wooden slats and he would climb up. And so just kind of extreme behaviors. But again, it depends where they are on the spectrum. There can be children that are really not affected very much. You may not see really any characteristics at that point in their, in their lives. All right, let's move up to the before school age. So past the preschool age, uh, our two to uh, five or six. Okay. So again, I think a really um, typical, very common behaviors, maybe again, that kind of um, hyperactivity, constantly on the move, having to be much more aware of safety um, than you were a neurotypical. Again, the kind of low tolerance for frustration this age group anyway, you know, tends to have, they may still be having kind of temper tantrums and um, getting upset easily, but it, it would be much more extreme. There could be, um, you know, if there's sensory issues, just, you know, things we're not aware of at this point, like lights or sounds could just make a child, you know, really have trouble maintaining um, kind of stability emotionally. And again, could just have explosions and be very hard to to settle if we're trying to put them in like a preschool at this point. Again, um, even though they're three or four, developmentally, they may be more like one. So it may be very hard for them even to sit for you know a couple minutes in a circle or to be able to follow instructions or to start you know lining up in a, in a little line. Um, all of these kind of things, again, it's a spectrum, so it will be different in every child. Mm-hmm. 
And another thing we often start seeing uh, again uh, with some children would be that 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 inability to 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 form the cause and effect relationship. And that sometimes is seen beginning at this preschooler age, because mm-hmm. we do expect neurotypical preschoolers to be able to start doing that. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move into uh, elementary school age. What would be some of the things that we might see with a child on the uh, fetal alcohol spectrum? Right. So this is the most common time for parents to really understand or begin to see that there may be some underlying difficulties because up to this point, um, a lot of parents, if they kind of have a parenting style that's, um, I would say, very understanding and, and kind of flexible and not real authoritarian and and meeting, kind of really reading their child and their needs, it's typical not to really see a lot of the primary characteristics very obviously until they get to school age. And mm-hmm. school age is where we start to see a lot more of these characteristics. And it's probably mostly because the expectations at home are very different than the expectations in a formal school environment. So again, that developmental age, you know, if we expect all six-year-olds to be going to first grade and they're really more like three, um, it's going to be very difficult. They may be like playing more like parallel play. They can do really well side by side with other children, but being able to share and, um, you know, sit again for even longer periods of time may not be realistic for a child, we can start to see that they may not be ready for the academic pieces. You know, where today, you know, the expectations keep getting higher and higher, but today we kind of expect six-year-olds to begin reading and doing some math. And that it's very common that children in the fetal alcohol spectrum are um, not ready for those academic milestones at the ages and grades that we would expect. There can be impulsivity issues. So just, you know, saying things without thinking and doing things without thinking can get them in a lot of trouble socially or, you know, on the playground. There can be safety issues or just, you know, the inability to kind of be quiet when the teacher's talking Many, many, many different characteristics can start to be seen in in the school environment, and it will be different, once again, for every child. And I think that sometimes when we we also begin to see the how the the slowness in processing that sometimes accompanies this disorder uh, will show itself in the elementary ages, because that's when we start around third grade, higher level thinking skills start are supposed to start kicking in. And so the discrepancy between the child who is both slow to process and has higher level thinking issues and abstract reasoning issues, the disparity becomes more apparent. And the expectations are that a child that age should be able to do these things. Right. And that includes like the abstract Thinking, you know, math, especially math, can be a kind of hands-on subject, Um, you know, cubes or whatever we're using. And once a child gets to about third, fourth, fifth grade, math starts becoming very abstract. The numbers get bigger than we can have cubes for. And as they get older, you know, we even start putting letters in math equations. And 
that can get very difficult for a child that has difficulty with the abstract thinking. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a perfect segue into the next age, which is tweens and teens, uh, because abstract thinking is where a lot of our education is moving at that point. Right. So the the adolescent years, as we all know, for a neurotypical child can be very challenging. And I think parents find this season of life particularly challenging with um, kids in the FASD, well, the fetal alcohol spectrum, partly again, because of the developmental age. So let's say, you know, at 16, most 16 year olds in the United States, you know, they're excited to get their driver's permit, get their driver's license to be getting more independence. And if a 16 year old is more like eight, even though they, and this is the, this is the thing that can be challenging. Most kids with fetal alcohol are incredibly intelligent and they really want to be like their peers. And so there's that desire to be like everybody else. And yet they're not ready for some of those milestones that their peers are ready for. So that can start to create a lot of conflict between parents trying to keep kids safe and the desire of the child to be to be like their peers. So that can be an issue. Again, the impulsivity is an issue with any teenager, um, but it is compounded with the, the fetal alcohol in um, really, they can get themselves into situations that are really dangerous. I'm not recognizing, you know, even picking friends. They're, they usually are very, you know, are desperate to be social and have friendships. And so um, sometimes the judgment is even, even less than, than a neurotypical teenager. So who they would define as a friend they don't see sometimes the the dangers or you know the way that person's treating me that's that's not a friend this is not a person that's being kind to me and they will do sometimes almost anything to be accepted and they're usually kids with super genuine beautiful compassionate hearts they're usually not you know bad kids and they can just get themselves into a lot of situations that can be dangerous for them, along with what we've talked about, you know, the academics. If the academic, what they're ready for continues to um, lag behind their chronological age, that kind of um, gap can become greater and greater. So those are, those are just some of the areas that can be challenging with the teenage season. And, and let me throw out a, a couple more. One, it just is, is reinforcing what you were saying about uh, choosing friends, sometimes these kids have trouble making deep friendships because there is a gap between their development and their chronological age. And that's not, that doesn't always fit for the others in their age group to, to befriend them. And as a result, they are sometimes more needy for friends and then comp- compound that with the lack of judgment, perhaps when picking friends, that we do see that pretty frequently as an, as an issue. And another thing we see at this beginning to hit in, particularly in the in the teen years, we start expecting teens and adolescents to be able to manage time, money, and schedules. And that can often be, again, it's individual, not all children will experience this, who are even on the spectrum, but that can be a difficulty for children who have been prenatally exposed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. 
Let me pause now to thank the Jockey Being Family Foundation for underwriting the Creating a Family radio show podcast. Every day, Jockey Being Family is fostering change in hope of brighter futures for our adoptive families. The journey of adoption can be challenging, unpredictable, and of course, highly rewarding. They believe in supporting children every step of the way. Together, we can all support, educate, and strengthen families to help create their own happily ever after. Please support them in this journey by going to their website, jockeybeingfamily.com, and click on the donate button. Uh, They have had to cancel their, as with many organizations, their major fundraiser this year, and the Jockey International stores have also been shuttered for a while during this pandemic, so it would be helpful if you could support them. And we thank them for their support of us. All right. I don't want to stop at the, we've been talking about how the uh, alcohol exposure and the brain damage that that it can cause can manifest itself at different ages. I want to extend this discussion into young adulthood and adulthood, uh, because one of the things I want to ask is, do people who have been exposed prenatally to alcohol, do they outgrow the brain dysfunction that it can cause? Right. So again, this is going to depend on the individual. We know that fetal alcohol syndrome, as well as um, the spectrum, is really considered invisible, physical, permanent disability. So this is not something that usually goes away over time. But what can and usually does happen is somebody in the fetal alcohol spectrum, it's not that they, you know, they're, they're born and their, their brain never changes or progresses. We know that people that have been exposed to alcohol prenatally, they continue all their lives to, um, just as, as neurotypical people, to mature, to progress, to um, learn skills, to um, navigate life with the different challenges they have. And so it's going to look different for every person. There are many, many people within the fetal alcohol spectrum that end up being able to be very independent, functional, productive people in society. And there's also quite a large number probably that um, will need some kind of support their whole entire life. So it really depends on the person. Um, It's also... I think many have experienced that um, this kind of big gap between chronological age and developmental age tends to get smaller, that gap. Once a person reaches middle 20s, 30s, sometimes that gap is not so big. And we see a big leap in the ability to kind of um, navigate some of these issues that have been much more difficult in their younger years. So I think there is a ton of hope for um, people with fetal alcohol um, as we get into parenting strategies later and how to understand. That's a big key. Um, The earlier we can understand what's going on with the child gives them really the best possible outcome for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. I have heard uh, it described as scaffolding that oftentimes these young, well, teens, young adults, and 
even into adulthood, continue to need some form of scaffolding, uh, another word for support. It just gives me a very good image in my head of scaffolding around a building. And you may be able to, as they, uh, as that uh, difference between their maturity and as their coping skills, as they learn more coping skills, you can lower some of the scaffolding. And, and for some, they don't have to have scaffolding at all, but many of them do. It's just how high the scaffolding needs to be and, that, and, and who needs to provide it. Right. A question that we often get is, are children who were exposed prenatally to alcohol or drugs, uh, are they more likely uh, to abuse alcohol and drugs as tweens, teens, and young adults and adults? Mm -hmm. We do know that they are at much greater risk to have issues with addictions and trouble with substances if they start to, you know, experiment with those. And I think from the research I have read, I think kind of the hypothesis behind that is that when a child is exposed to especially alcohol in the prenatal period, alcohol is metabolized as a sugar. And um, it kind of, that addictive cycle is, is there kind of underlying in their brain. And again, this is not true for every person prenatally exposed to alcohol, but when a person is introduced to alcohol later on in life, that alcohol getting into their system is much more likely to trigger that addictive cycle than somebody that was not pre prenatally exposed to alcohol. So it, and because of some of these other characteristics, their impulsivity and, you know, some of them also um, have lived lives where there's been a lot of pain and rejection. And so it, it kind of um, is, a, is a more difficult place. So in our home, I have always told my boys from the time I adopted them when they were five and six, that they are allergic to alcohol. And we just, um, we are a home that doesn't have alcohol in our home. And, you know, everybody has allergies today. And so um, I've just told them, you know, if somebody inter or wants you to drink alcohol, just tell them you're, you're allergic to it because we really don't know how your body would respond to that. So there's different ways of responding and, and helping kids try to stay away from, you know, alcohol use and substance abuse. Mm -hmm. Because they are going to potentially be more at risk. Right. All right. You talked earlier and made the distinction between primary behaviors, which are caused by the brain damage caused by prenatal exposure, and secondary behaviors, which develop or can develop after exposure to failure, frustration, and not being understood because of the primary behaviors. So let's talk some about uh, what are some of the typical secondary behaviors that can develop. And, and let me emphasize, as you had said earlier, that uh, the good news about secondary behaviors is that with education and support, uh, education to the parents and support to the parents and to the child, they need not develop. But let's talk about what some of those secondary behaviors are. Right. So when a child has been chronically stressed and frustrated, it's especially when we do not understand that these primary characteristics are an indicator of brain dysfunction or, you know, functioning differently and we're kind of changing the way we do things, when we continue to expect 
out of a child on the fetal alcohol spectrum, what we would expect of a neurotypical child. Oftentimes, some of the characteristics that can develop are just um, fatigue, like being easily tired, anxious. They can be become kind of isolated and lonely, shut down, mm-hmm. fearful. Um, they're more prone to depression, to having that kind of short fuse, getting frustrated and angry easily. They could, um, you know, have self-harming behaviors, be avoidant or start running away, aggressive. They can kind of get into this pattern of talking back and being kind of argumentative. If when these kind of behaviors appear and, and we don't recognize them for what they are as these signs of chronic stress and frustration, usually things don't get better. They continue to get worse. And that's where we would see what we would call um, even tertiary characteristics, which could include things like criminal involvement, trouble at home and school, trouble with alcohol and, um, you know, addictions and some of these other even more difficult issues. So it's really important to be able to recognize when a child is under chronic stress and frustration and be able to um, begin to shift gears so that we can diminish these kind of characteristics instead of having them exacerbate. Mm -hmm. There is a saying amongst parents of, our trainers of parents or educators of parents uh, of children with FASD or on the alcohol spectrum, of we need to shift the concept from from won't to can't. Do you want to explain that some? Yeah. So you know, it, most parents um, were raised. You know, we were all raised differently, and and it's very common that some of these primary characteristics we would interpret. For example, you know, I ask a child to um, stop watching TV and you know to go take the garbage out, and immediately the child says no. And it would be very common to interpret that as being disobedient, as being disrespectful, as being lazy, or all these kinds of, you know, normal ways that we could interpret that kind of behavior. But when we um, start to understand that if that child has difficulty shifting gears, having that cognitive flexibility, has difficulty um, with memory, so whatever I'm asking them, they have to remember amidst many other things, then we can begin to see that maybe it's not that this child won't do what I'm asking them to do, but they actually can't do it, at least in the way that I'm expecting it, if that's immediate obedience. or um, So that's just one little example of kind of a shift in, in understanding that a child is not necessarily that they won't do something, it may be that they actually can't do it in the way that I'm expecting them to. Mm-hmm. And, in, and in that example, or perhaps not that exact example, but the quickly saying no, if you think about it, when you say no quickly, it slows things down. And when you're processing slower, saying no buys you time. So it's, uh, it's another thing to think about. So that this child is actually that, that that can be a coping mechanism to slow things down. It's not a particularly good one because it sets people off, but it is one that, that could work with right. them. And we also see children who will uh, withdraw when too much information is coming in, turn off the TV, go put up the the supper dishes and go take a shower and come on, let's get moving. Uh, You know, that's a whole lot of information coming in and a kid may just, well, just shut down, just withdraw, 
And that's a way of avoiding and trying to, again, buy time to process and think things through. All right, let's now talk about um, some of the other things that we may see as secondary behaviors. You've mentioned anxiety, depression, and that can lead to poor self-esteem, difficulty making friends. We've already talked about that being a problem. Uh, It could be a problem. It could be a primary uh, for the discrepancy between development and chronological, developmental age and chronological age, but it can also be a secondary behavior as well. And I'm really glad you mentioned the opposition and defiance because that can also be, it's also very typical uh, secondary behavior that we might see with children who are, have been constantly exposed to failure and frustration. Any others that you can think of? I think another one could be that they can easily get in trouble because of being easily manipulated by others. What we've talked about before, that desperate need for friends and to to really do anything to be accepted or or have friendships. Also, as um, children get older, there, there can be issues in the sexual area. It can be from impulsivity. Or I know with my own parenting, just recognizing, again, the developmental age that even, you know, when a child is eight, they may be more like four. So having to, you know, the the safety as well as just recognizing that um, there may need to be more boundaries or education at the appropriate developmental level of a child in that area they can get you know, disruptive in class or at work, secondary to anxiety or frustration, or can be seen as destructive from, from anger you know, if they are continually not understood and they you know, get angry and um, sometimes can get destructive from chronic, chronic anger and frustration. Mm-hmm. Anxiety can also play into that just... Uh living with constant anxiety. Let me remind you that this show is brought to you through the support of our partners. And these are agencies that believe in the mission of creating a family to strengthen, foster, adoptive, and kinship families and the professionals who support them. And these agencies put their money where their mouth is. They they back us uh, financially to help us. They provide financial support to this organization to help us bring you this show and all the resources that we do. One such organization is Children's Connection, Inc. They are an adoption agency providing services for domestic infant adoption, and they also have an embryo donation and adoption program that works throughout the U.S. They also provide home studies and post-adoption support to the families in Texas. All right, now we're moving to the part of tips. We want to talk about how do parents need to adapt their parenting to be the best parent possible to a child with FASD. So, or other, in other words, parenting tips for parents with kids with FASD. So how, how can parents be the best parents? What are some tips? You have been in the trenches and you've also spent a, a good portion of your professional life training other parents. So what are some tips? Yeah, so um, this is a really huge topic that um, that's why I do what I do because it it really does take really most of the time a different way of understanding and responding to behaviors than most of us were brought up with. So a huge piece is what we've been talking about a lot um, during this hour, are understanding these behaviors that are 
that are linked to brain differences. And once we understand that, you know, a lot of the behaviors that are um, difficult for us or that are not responding to typical good parenting techniques are not because a child does not want to do what we're asking them to do, but actually they can't. Um, that begins to shift the way we respond. There have been studies, research done with parents that if a parent believes that a child's behavior is intentional, they will most often respond punitively, you know, get doing mm -hmm. this kind of behavior modification step. If a parent believes that a child's behavior is because of an underlying disability, they usually tend to respond in a more supportive way. And so this is really the direction we want to move. And I think that most parents, this is really a lifelong process because it's usually a very different way of understanding and responding. So um, that's why I do what I do. Um, I actually went, um, received several trainings um, as a parent and then believed so much that this made all the difference that this is what I do full time now. And so there are, which I think Don is going to put at the end of this podcast, there are many opportunities to be, to receive training through webinar and face-to-face -face opportunities to really, um, if you haven't already begun this journey, to be able to do that journey um, along with others that are also parenting children with neurobehavioral characteristics. Um, so that's one big piece. The other probably big piece is then what, what does that mean in real life? You know, really understanding where these behaviors are coming from and then what do I do differently? And so mm -hmm. um, the um, organization I work with, FACETS, we have a couple um, really practical kind of grids that we help parents work through their you know, greatest frustrations and challenges with their children that both help parents understand ourselves because a lot of these behaviors can bring up really strong emotions in us. Um, emotions we didn't know we had. <laughs> um, I yeah. always say I thought I was a really good person until I adopted my boys. And then I realized kind of the darkness of my soul and the things I could end up saying and doing simply because I, I wasn't prepared and I didn't understand what was going on. And, and so um, it's really important that we can understand ourselves and our own values and expectations and where those come from. And then how we understand our child better to come up with, just like we would with anybody else with a more visible physical disability, um, our children need accommodations to, to be successful and to um, function at their, their highest abilities. So one of the really important questions we, we need to ask is like when we're expecting something, for example, we're expecting a, a six-year-old to sit, you know, in a, in a classroom for a, whatever it is, 20 minutes, and they're not doing that, most of the time, most of us don't ask the question, what does this child's brain have to be able to do to accomplish this task? Um, and that's a really important question. And it's, it's a difficult one because we're not used to thinking that way. Um, but if we expect a child to be able to sit still for a period of time, you know, just a couple things, that child would have to inhibit the stimuli around them. They would have to be able to ignore 
you know, different things that are going on and to have that ability to focus. And when we're expecting a child to do something that they don't have the ability to do, there's always going to be problems. So understanding that link, as well as what we've talked about, their developmental age. So if the six-year-old is really more like three, then we need to adjust our expectations to be more in line with where they are developmentally. So asking myself, if my child was only three, you know, how would I handle this situation? Um, and that often both takes the stress off the child as well as helps us be in a different emotional place. Mm -hmm. And then what I mentioned earlier today was um, if we can focus and really learn our child's strengths and passions and interests and in the way they learn and try to focus more on those and building on those. Like I know a family who they didn't know their child was on the fetal alcohol spectrum until she was about 16 years old. And she had had, you know, social problems and academic issues and was just struggling so much in high school. But they also knew that her passion was cats. And so um, they actually made the decision to not have her continue in high school and to figure out how she could, you know, really base her life around cats. And they helped her make her own cat sitting business. And today she is in her 30s, she's married, she has a child, and she is so happy and doing so well. And she has this amazing business where she takes care of cats. So that's like a beautiful success story of a parent kind of, oftentimes we have to give up our kind of dreams and expectations or what we would define as success and really understand who our child is and um, help them be able to live out what their passions and strengths and abilities are. So that's just an example of, of a way to kind of parent differently. I know of, I, I appreciate what you're saying about, it, it's, very, it's, it's very hard and sometimes very frustrating to parent children who are not neurotypical. And part of it's because of our own, our own programming, our own, you know, if a child does not do what I'm saying it do, that is disrespectful. If a child does not quickly do what I'm saying to do, it, that's disrespectful. If a child cannot uh, learn and is struggling uh, to read, then that means they are never going to be able to. So then we panic because I, I would come from a family who values education and we worry what the future will bring. And so I know of one family that used uh, yellow sticky pads and the mom was really struggling with uh, overreacting and reacting her, in her own frustration. And so she wrote on it, it's brain damage on the on those yellow sticky pads. And she put it frequently throughout the house. And uh, I didn't know the woman. This is a story that was told to me. And it, uh, it really helped her because it helped ground her in understanding. Uh, and then being able to step back and do the things that you have talked about, consider the developmental age uh, over the chronological age, as opposed to He's 10 years old. Why the heck can't he do this? Remembering that there may be brain damage and also trying to, it helped her to then say, okay, I have no control over some of the primary behaviors, but I can work to prevent some of the secondary behaviors by providing support and structuring and help this kid. So that's another, I've heard of that idea working as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about uh, some other practical mm -hmm. tips. 
Let's talk about the importance of structure. Again, that fits in with the uh, the words that we've been using, support, scaffolding, and things, accommodations. Uh, why is structure important for many kids who are on the fetal alcohol spectrum? Yeah, that's a great, great question, Don. And as we talked about at the very beginning of this hour, part of what happens in the developing brain with prenatal alcohol exposure is that kind of disorganization in the brain. So instead of the brain growing in this very organized fashion, it can be um, very disorganized. And so when somebody inside, when their brain is disorganized, they rely on external organization and structure to be able to function. So this is really important to remember, and it can be the smallest thing. I remember when my boys were younger, we used to have this routine that one morning we would have, you know, for breakfast, like pancakes or waffles or some eggs or something. And the next day was cereal and we would alternate this, you know, and that was just the way we did things. And one day, for some reason, I forgot what, what day we were on. And instead of cereal, I had made something else. And my younger son that's on the spectrum came down and exploded. You would have thought that, you know, <laughs> something major, majorly upsetting had happened. And it really ruined his whole day. And at, at, mm -hmm. at first, I was like, you know, totally upset and thinking, get oh my over. gosh, what's your yeah, it's problem? Like, get over it. Yeah. I fixed you breakfast. You know, <laughs> do you realize how many kids don't have a mom out there fixing you? Yeah, I, I got it. Exactly. I'd be right there with you. And, but as yeah. the day went on, I started to remember this and I realized that, you know, for him, he relied on that routine to organize himself for the day. And for me, it was totally insignificant for him. It was a huge way that he would organize, you know, what day are we on? What are we doing? And so it's not always possible, as all of us knows, to keep everything consistent and, you know, a, a regular routine and structure. But as much as possible, it tends to help these kids um, function as well as they can to have that external organization. And when there's going to be a change, to give them quite a bit of warning ahead of time. Um, that, you know, this is what's, you know, this is going to be different and it may not eliminate the frustration and the stress, but it tends to diminish the huge explosions of all of a sudden having something change without them being warned that something will be different. Mm -hmm. An example of this is the use of lists. And I, I give an example of a family that I know and their daughter uh, when I was talking with them, their daughter was probably 16 and she was constantly, I mean, when I, actually she was probably 14 when, when we first started talking, she was so disorganized. She was forgetting not just not only homework, but she'd forget to brush her hair. She'd be forgetting every, you name it. It was just getting her out the door in the morning was just a huge ordeal and seldom was done successfully. And then the, the question they were posing for us was, well, should we be driving to school to provide the homework or bring a brush because all of a sudden she's embarrassed because she had forgotten to brush her hair uh, or any of the other things? You know, is that rescuing her by doing this? 
what they came up with eventually when they settled down and, and got over some of the frustration about, my God, she's 14. She's acting like a, and in fact, she probably was acting like about an eight-year-old. But when they started treating her as an eight-year-old and thinking, what would we do if she was eight? They came across, yes, we'd make her a list. So they came up with a whiteboard that they hung in the hallway outside the bathroom. And on the whiteboard was in permanent marker, a long list of everything that needed to be done and a marker, a erasable marker that she could put a check by it. And it really helped her. And it was amazingly detailed. Of course, brush your teeth, but also brush your hair, get your homework. That would be obvious, but also, uh, you know, put in, uh, think about where you're going to be after school and do you need, you know, any number of things. It was just, it was like a 15 point list. And then they realized, they thought, well, this is a lot for her to remember. And the hard part for them, they started that at 14, then she was 16, and then she was 17. And they were like, well, when do we pull this? Should we continue to have the, the whiteboard up for her to do this? Are we enabling her to not stretch and be able to remember? So what, how would you answer that? At what point should parents start saying, at some point, we're not helping her grow, we're enabling her to not grow? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this comes up a lot in... The trainings I do. Yes, it does. And I think that word enable is very interesting because in our society, it has a very negative connotation that we mm-hmm. see as, you know, um, doing something for somebody else that they could do themselves. When really the definition of enable is to mm-hmm. um, provide the conditions around a person so that they are able to do what they need to do. So just as if, you know, uh, for example, a blind person, you know, we could ask the question, well, when will they be able to see? And so we can have them quit reading Braille and, you know, read like a neurotypical person um, or, you know, a, a sighted person. And the answer is never. That person will always need to read Braille. That's not necessarily true with somebody with fetal alcohol because as we know, their brain, their brains do progress and mature and need different things at different times. But giving this teenager um, this whiteboard, as long as it's working for her and as long as that's what she needs, then it's not, it is it's enabling her to function. She may herself come to the conclusion one day, I don't need that board anymore. I think I, I think I can do this on my own. But until that happens, it's probably something that she needs to organize herself. I know I worked with a couple in Costa Rica who were in their 60s when they finally discovered that they had had this tumultuous marriage and had been separated and everything. And the wife finally understood that her husband actually wasn't this lazy, you know, terrible guy. He was on the fetal alcohol spectrum. And in his 60s, they used things like um, some of you have probably heard of this thing called a timed timer, which is actually a clock that you can see the time disappearing. You like for 15 minutes, you put this little red kind of covering over to the 15 and you can see the time disappearing. And they began to realize things that, you know, he didn't understand time or time passing. Mm-hmm. And for him in the kitchen to use something like that made all the difference. So these are not tools that enable people. 
in the negative sense. They are tools, um, just like anybody with a disability, that they may need to be able to function and be successful. Mm -hmm. in, the, in this case with this family, at some point, and I, I don't remember whether it was the daughter's choice or their choice, but it was when she was, she didn't go to college. She went to a, a technical training school for cosmetology. And it was at that point, she was still living at home. They helped her set up a list on her phone, you know, using one of the note apps or whatever. And it was, they had, it was important. They had to experiment. It was important that it had a checkbox. It would actually have a visible check. And they continued to have to ask her, uh, did, have you checked your, have you checked your list? And when she, they had to continue doing that, but that was the next step for her to own the responsibility. Uh, and and last time I was working with them, they were they were still having to remind her to check it, and they were hoping. And she was a young adult at that point, and they were still having to provide that type of support. Um, schedules, as you mentioned, is another important thing, particularly for well for for everyone. Uh, I liked your mention of the timers. So what are some other tools like that timer and other, we're going to talk about digital tools here in just a minute, but let's talk about just physical tools that uh, you have seen work for families to help provide the scaffolding, the aid, the support to enable in the correct sense of the word, to able, make them more able to make children and not a children, but young adults, teens, adolescents, and adults able to do things. Yeah, that's a really good question too, Dawn. And I think, again, it's really different for every child and every family. So, um, you know, anytime we can make something more concrete rather than abstract will be helpful. So yes, the, the idea of making time, with, like with the time timer, more concrete. I know um, another area that's very abstract and hard sometimes for um, for people on the spectrum is money management. I'm so glad you raised that. That was exactly what I was going to, because I hear it yeah. all the time. So yes, let's talk about money management for our teens, young adults, and adults. Right. So again, you know, it's going to be different for every person, but instead of perhaps, you know, using cards, um, credit cards or debit cards, making it very hands-on and, um, you know, once a person is ready to kind of, you know, have a set amount of money or get an allowance or, you know, try to start learning how to um, save or budget, you know, using cash and um, putting the cash in envelopes that's designated for, you know, different things. That's a very more concrete than having this card, you know, which you can't, it's hard for a lot of neurotypical people <laughs> yeah. to deal with cards. But that's, that's one idea um, for money. I think the example Don used with the, the whiteboard or the sticky pads is also, you know, very useful for a lot of families or there's, um, you know, for a very young child's. Um, words may even be too much. There's something called pictograms that families that have children in the um, autism spectrum often use to communicate. So, you know, making a list or a routine, not with words necessarily, um, but with pictures, either pictures that have already been, you know, drawn that are on the computer, you can find them. Or many of um, many people in the fetal alcohol spectrum are incredibly creative and artistic, 
And so, you know, some of them love to help with these kind of things and something that will be meaningful for them. Another example um, would be, for example, you send a child to go clean their room and that's very abstract. What does that mean? For me, a clean room may mean something totally different than for another person. And that's a whole topic in itself, every, how complicated that is. But I know, you know, gone in and cleaned the room with the child. And once the room is the way it's supposed to, opening the closet and taking where the clothes hung up and then putting that picture inside the closet door so that when you tell the child to go organize their closet, they can open the door and see a picture of what that means um, and do that, you know, all over the room. What does it mean to make your bed? What is your bed supposed to look like? So anytime we can make something more visual or, you know, these, this population tends to learn much more hands on. Um, so sometimes it's even in a family, you know, if you have siblings doing skits about, you know, this happened at school today. This kid came up and said, hey, you want to go outside and uh, smoke a joint with me or whatever? Let's do a skit. You know, what would be the different ways to respond to that? And what might happen, you know, if you made this or that decision? And so there's so many creative hands-on options of how to deal with different behaviors or teach different concepts that tend to be much more effective than just using our words. And for and one thing to keep in mind that often language processing issues go hat in hand with children on the fetal alcohol spectrum. And for those people like myself who tend to be very verbal, it's hard. I have to constantly remember to use fewer words, slow down my speech, and just give that person time to process what I'm asking and not try to get it all in in one conversation, another problem I have. Uh, and be as specific as I can. I tend to, by nature, want to use a lot of conditional words. Um, however, instead, or, you know, uh, probably, or likely, or things like that. And the more specific I can be and concrete, the better it is for, the, for everyone, but especially for children on the spectrum. All right. Um, so we've talked about money and time management issues that often really bedevil and just going back to your uh, cleaning up the room, that's another good place for a list. Uh, but you also have to be realistic and not expect everything, but pick the five top things or the three top things you expect when you say clean the room. And if they are readers, uh, and if lists work for them, and you're, as you point out, pictures may work better uh, for some kids. But if lists work, have a checklist for them to check off, all right, bed made, stuffed animals in bed, and clothes either in hamper or hanging on a, on a rack. And that may be all you're expecting for a clean room when you tell them to go clean their room. So all of those things. All right. So what is the prognosis for a child with, let's say, uh, significant prenatal issues caused by prenatal exposure? Because as we point out, this is a spectrum. So on the spectrum, there could be children who are impacted quite not much at all. And then there are children who are impacted more significantly. So what is the prognosis? Right. Once again, um, that's really hard to say because even children that are severely affected will be very different one from the other. What we know is that the best possible prognosis occurs when the earlier in a person's life 
that we can understand what we've been talking about today, that a person has behaviors that would be considered primary characteristics or that are telling us that their brain works differently. And therefore they need um, a different understanding, they need different parenting style and techniques, they need accommodations around them, just like anybody else with um, a disability to be able to function and be successful. So the earlier on in life that can happen, the better. Although at the same time, it's never too late. So a lot of parents that are fostering a child, for example, or adopt older children, it's never too late to start understanding differently and doing things differently. And the more in line our expectations are with a person's abilities and the more able we are to accommodate and put those pieces in place that help the person with fetal alcohol be able to um, use their strengths and their abilities and learn the way they learn, the, the more um, successful and happier they will be. So um, that's another reason I do what I do. I do not think a person's life, even that's severely affected by fetal alcohol, is all doom and gloom and terrible prognosis. I think there is incredible hope. And um, I know many, 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 many stories, beautiful stories of um, families who have really come to understand their child with fetal alcohol and embrace who they are and not only just kind of tolerate it, but celebrate who that person is and really, like we've talked about, build on their interests and passions and help them be the person that they, they really are instead of who society wants them to be or who we as parents want them to be. And that really gives them the best possible chance in life to reach their potential and be happy, productive people. Excellent. Thank you so much, Suzanne Emery, for being with us today to talk about what it is really like to raise a child with FASD. Let me remind everybody that the views expressed in this show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners, or our underwriters. Also, keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how to apply it to your specific situation, you need to work with your adoption or foster care professional. To get more information about either Suzanne or the organization Facets, you can go and, and let me say that it is a wonderful organization and a wealth of information. And you can find much of that information at their website, which is facets.org. I'm going to spell that F-A-S-C-E-T-S dot org. And if you think you are or you know you are parenting a child on the fetal alcohol spectrum, that is a place you need to go. Thanks so much for joining us today, and I will see you next week.